May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So to get us going, just a few questions to see how much you listen to sermons over the last, oh I don't know, however long you've been coming to church. So what season of the year are we currently in? Start off with the easy questions. Epiphany. Excellent. Well, that was on the pew sheet, so that wasn't too hard. So, when does Epiphany start? And when does Christmas finish? 6th of January. And what's the 6th of January? The coming of the three Magi. That's right. And how many days after Christmas is the 6th of January? Twelve. Twelve. Okay. Some Catholic tried to tell me there were eight days in Christmas, and I went, yeah, I don't think that's right. So, twelve days in Christmas. Now, there are two versions of when Epiphany ends, so I'm happy for two answers. When does Epiphany end? Lent. Ashman. So, so that's one answer. And uh, so there are lots of churches, including our own, that went to Lent. But recently, we, like, since I've been here, we've gone back to another dating, another understanding. So when does Epiphany finish in the other one? Not Shrove Tuesday, no. No, not that. Completely another one. Sorry? And what's on February 2nd? The presentation of Jesus in the temple is on the 2nd of February, also known as, what's the other name for the presentation of Jesus in the temple? Candlemas. So... No, Pandemas is 2nd of February. So this Sunday is the fourth Sunday in Epiphany, but it is also the Sunday closest to Candlemas, or the presentation of Jesus in the temple. So, today marks, in some calendars, the end of Epiphany. So next Sunday will be an ordinary time. So why do we stop Epiphany on Candlemas, apart from it's a cool thing, which I'll talk about in a minute. Any ideas? Ran Who's good at maths? Ran out of days. It's got something to do with days. So there are 28 days between the 6th of January and the 2nd of February. So if you put 28 with 12, you get 40. So the season of Christmas and Epiphany put together make 40 days. So that's why in some calendars, including ours now, Epiphany finishes on Candlemas, or the presentation of Jesus in the temple. So, not too bad. So, okay, last question. What is Epiphany about? Revelation. Revelation? Sudden, sudden revelation. Sudden um, discovery of new meaning. Right. So, Revelation, new meaning. So, it starts with the revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles through the Magi. 
Then the next week, what reading did you have? Can you remember? I said Debbie remembers, I think she preached on it. <laughs> you might not have. Uh, actually, it might have been Alex. So it was the baptism of the Lord. So that's the revelation of his divinity. Then the next two Sundays were about Paul. So it's the revelation that we're actually part of this as well. And who he who Jesus is. And then uh, and then we have the revelation this week. So Epiphany is a time to reflect on how God is revealed, not only to the Jews, but to all people, including us, in the person and the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus. And it's not just about what happened back then. It invites our amazement now. How does this amaze us now? Just as it amazed people back then. So, this Sunday is the Sunday closest to the presentation of our Lord in the temple, the Feast of the Presentation. So that's why we had the reading from Luke. Luke is the only one that talks about this. Only Matthew and Luke have any kind of nativity stories. Mark just starts at um, the baptism and uh, John has a whole lot of um, crazy stuff and then the baptism. So... uh, and well, it's that whole prologue thing. And um, and Luke and Matthew have very different stories. So Matthew, the Holy Family, live in Bethlehem. They have a child. Uh, then Herod gets all antsy, so they go to Egypt and they end up in Nazareth. In Luke, they live in Nazareth. They have to go to Bethlehem because of the census. And then on the way home to Nazareth, they stop at Jerusalem and do all the the stuff that the law requires in the temple and they carry on home. So very different timelines in both those Gospels and the timelines are different because their theology is different. They're trying to show different things about Jesus. They're not trying to tell history. They're trying to describe theology and they use story to do it. So the story we have from Luke this morning shows a very poor, so the sacrifice they offer, if you go back and read the readings, the Mosaic Law, that is the offerings that a poor family would offer. Um, any, anyone with money would have had to offer a lamb. So they are poor and they are devout. They go beyond what the law offers. So what the law requires of them. And that's the world that Jesus grows up in, in a poor but devout world. The whole town of Nazareth would have been like that. So they would have grown up in that world. And we have the two prophets, Simeon and Anna. And Simeon's words for some of us are quite familiar. Those of us who went to Evensong, those of us who might still occasionally or regularly use night prayer, that's the Nunc the Song of Simeon. So you would have sung it or said it regularly. So during lockdown, when I was part of the night prayer group, I almost memorised it, re-memorised it, as I did that each night. So that, that is the prayer for night prayer. And both of their words are about how this baby holds the hopes and dreams of Israel, that the glory of the Lord would, the Shekinah of, Lord, of the Lord would be restored 
and that Israel would once again be restored to its place within the world, which would have been astounding for them. This little child that was kind of conceived strangely, and there's all sorts of questions about him, uh, born in a stable with the sheep and the cows, this is the child on which all those hopes rest. This is also known as Candlemas, and it's because on this Sunday, for a long time, uh, nowadays we just buy candles when we run out, um, but for a long time actually, Guli used to make our candles for us. So on the days when the candles were all handmade, they would have all been finished by now, brought into the church, and blessed. And these candles would have seen been seen to have... Um, protective and healing powers. So during the plague, for example, those candles were seen to protect people from the plague. It's an interesting thought for us in our own plague at the moment. Uh, in Ireland, uh, when people were dying, they would be given the stubs of one of these candles, uh, a lit stub to light their way as they left this world into the next world so that they could see where they were going. So these candles... Uh, I mean, they, they're just ceremonial now, most of the time. You can just go back to the other one for now. Um, most of the time, uh, we just like having them there, but they, they had a practical purpose in churches in the past. They didn't have electric lights swinging in the breeze. They had, only had candles to see by, um, so that was their functional purpose. But they reminded people of God's presence they reminded people of God's life-giving activity in the darkest of times. And they helped people see beyond things as they are. They remind us that this does not have to be. That there are other ways of being. And in God we can see those ways. So they have important symbolic roles in our life as well. If we, if we uh, bother to think about it. And the little red light over there reminds us that uh, in the, in the uh, consecrated elements that are in the ombre, uh Christ is present. So it is something to note. So I just look over there. So the Koreans keep forgetting that and they turn it off. And it's like, Jesus is not in the house anymore. So I have to turn the light on to remind people that Jesus is in the house. Uh, this Sunday is also the fourth Sunday in Epiphany. So, um, and actually when I came here and was changing my filing cabinet, Epiphany did go all the way through to Ash Wednesday, so my filing cabinet has 5th Sunday in Epiphany, 6th Sunday in Epiphany, 7th Sunday in Epiphany, so it just carries on. Um, but we now flip over into ordinary time. The writers of the lectionary decided we should kind of use the English version. So... Um, So I chose to have both the Gospels, both the Luke and the Mark Gospel. So most of the readings we've had today are the presentation of the Lord in the Temple readings, but I held on to the Mark one for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is, well, the main reason is that Mark is one of the two Gospels that we're going to um, hear a lot of this year. The other one is John, so this is a kind of Mark-John year. Um, and these early chapters... Were, which, this first chapter, which we've been kind of reading round and round in. So um, 
Like I think this is about the fourth reading and some of it you've read more than once and we're going to hear it again uh, on Ash Wednesday um, and maybe the first Sunday in Lent with um, Jesus um, being tested in the wilderness. Um, we kind of spend a lot of time in here, but this first chapter lays out all the themes that the rest of the, of the gospel explores. So essentially, the first line is the title, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's Son, that's the title. And then uh, the, the next rest of that first chapter kind of lays out some of the themes. And then the rest of the gospel says, so what do those themes mean? So it's important that we actually hear all of that first chapter so that we know what the themes are that we keep coming back to whenever we're reading Mark's Gospel. So last week we began with uh, uh, verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came into the Galilee announcing God's good news, saying, Now is the time. Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. And there are a number of commentators who would say that the rest of the gospel explores that verse. Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives. Trust this good news. And then he goes on to invite his first followers and begins living out God's kingdom. Now, the, the phrase that was translated as change your hearts and lives in other versions of uh, like the NRSV is translated as repent. And as I've said before, repent literally means bigger mind. And one of the, the podcasts I listened to, the Bible scholar there said, another way of translating this is this should blow your mind. Have your minds been blown. So we could read that as saying, Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Let it blow your minds. Trust this good news. So the question is, how does this good news blow our minds? Because that's what Mark is inviting us to. So last week I said there were some themes, so the themes were now is the time, blow your minds, trust this good news. There are some themes this week as well, themes that carry on through the rest of Mark's Gospel. And the first of those themes is Jesus is the liberator. So the first way he liberates is by his teaching. Uh, Now you can have the, the other one, sorry. So the first thing is, he doesn't teach like the scribes and, the, and the, the legal experts. Now, there's nothing wrong with the way the scribes and the legal experts teach. It's exactly the same way as they teach today. So they are schooled in a particular way of understanding Torah and the prophets. And they will learn what previous people have said. And they will be able to quote what those previous teachers have said. And then they will be able to apply that to a situation and say what that means. But Jesus says, you have heard it said. So that's that's how other people teach. But I say to you. So he doesn't quote other rabbis. He doesn't go back and reach into the tradition and say what other people are saying. But I say to you, he is offering a new yoke. 
The word yoke within that context means a new way of understanding the law and the prophets. So he's still talking about the law and the prophets, but he's offering a different way of understanding it. And one of the people I read said, what he does is really interesting because he teaches in parables. All the Gospels are clear about that. They are together on that. He teaches in parables. So let's think about that. A teacher says, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said this, so-and-so says this, so I say this. This is what this means. So all you have to do, you people out there, is say, okay, that's what it means. That's cool. And actually, most of the time, that's what us clergy do. This is what it means, and you go, okay, that's what it means. But Jesus tells parables. Well, what does the parable mean? How do you work that out? We have a conversation with the people around you. You talk about that. And in the end, you have to work out what it means. He tells a story. You have to work it out. As this person said, he democratized. He democratized the law. He said, you people have a role in understanding what it means as well as the trained teachers. That was very liberating. And we keep sliding back at that because we're not sure that actually people should have the responsibility of working out what it means. Uh, we think that actually the trained people should. Uh, but I, uh, a long time ago, went to a um, youth ministry conference in Oxford and one of the people had, uh, was talking about working with kids in the East End and, um, and based on his work as a missionary in India, and basically in India, they would tell a story, as he said, we would tell a story and shut up. And then we would let people work out what it meant for themselves. And sometimes you would worry about where they were going. Like the Annunciation, one of the guys in the East End said, well, I'd give God a good thump for getting my missus pregnant. And he went, well, like that's a fair response to that story. We think it's a lovely story. He did not think it was a lovely story. So, but actually, as people kind of talked about those stories, it began to change them because they were talking about them and thinking about them for themselves. So that's the first thing. Jesus liberates people by teaching in a different way. But he also liberated people who were trapped. So today we heard the story of the man who was caged by the unclean spirit, stifled and restrained, and because of the unclean spirit, isolated, unable to communicate, to be in any kind of relationship with other people. And because of all of those things, denied the opportunity to thrive and to flourish. And in this story, Jesus quickly defeats that power quickly defeats the power that afflicts and deprives. He breaks the cage that holds that man, that limits that man, and he brings freedom and a chance to flourish. He offers that man the opportunity, the, the possibility of a new life. So the question for us then is, where do we see that liberation going on today? Where do we see Jesus' liberation happening today? Where do we see people being freed? Where do we people see people being uncaged and offered the opportunity of a new life, the possibility of a new life? 
And how does that blow our minds? The second theme is kind of related to that, and that is that Jesus and Jesus in Mark's gospel is representing God. He is God on the loose, and he is upsetting the order of things. And this upsetting the order of things will get him into trouble and eventually get him killed. He crosses the accepted boundaries. He does the unexpected. That's what the, that's what the Spirit squawks at him. Couldn't you just leave things as they are? That's what the Spirit squawks. So we learn from Mark's Gospel, from the very first story, that God's kingdom, which is coming, now is the time, is intrusive. It will break old boundaries. It will defeat all the powers that seek to cage and stifle, and it liberates and frees so that all can flourish. It opens up possibilities. The world does not need to be as it is. It can be a different way. As I said in Mark's Gospel, God is on the loose, not making expectations, blowing people's minds for better or for worse with a positive and a negative response, but opening up new possibilities. So today, as we listen to this Gospel, we are invited to pray for the faith to have our minds blown, to see the liberating work of God around us and to join this God on the loose. And then the third theme in all of this is authority. And this is one of the big themes in Mark's Gospel, and it goes with the other two themes. Where does Jesus get the authority to do this? Where does he get the authority to teach as he does? Where does he get the authority to act as he does? Doesn't he come from Nazareth? Isn't he a carpenter? Who does he think he is? He has no right to be doing any of these things. And the big question that Mark's Gospel is all about is where does Jesus' authority come from to do all of these things? And he's very clear about it. This authority comes from God. It's in the title. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right there in the first line. So Epiphany is a time to see God's kingdom, to know that the time is now, to know that, the, that things do not have to be as they have always been, to know that God is still on the loose, crossing the boundaries. And that can be a little bit scary because we have known our way of life and we've known how church is and that's worked for us well. But actually, maybe it's time we let go of some of that. And maybe, possibly, we have to think about what it means to be church in this new world. I go to the Ministers Association sometimes, and uh, Dave Mann from the Hope Project, you may have seen the Hope Project pop up on TV every now and again. Uh, they, he comes along, he's trying to kind of get Christianity back into the centre of life in New Zealand, which I don't object to. I think that's quite a reasonable thing. His problem is, really, fundamentally, he'd like us to go back to the 1960s and the worldview of the 1960s because he's got the answers to the questions that people asked in the 1960s. 
And his problem nowadays is people aren't asking the right questions for our answers. And I'm like, maybe we need to come up with some different answers. Because actually, you can't force people to ask different questions. The questions have changed because the world has changed. We have to be different in the world. God is still on the loose. God is still active in this world. So it is a little bit scary, but it's a little bit of an opportunity as well. And over the last year, well, over the last year, things have changed, haven't they? Around the world. So what does it mean for us to be church in this new world? How do we be church in this new world? So I wonder... What blows our minds as we listen to these stories? And in light of that, what are the possibilities as we start this new year? What are the boundaries that we might cross? And how might we join this work of liberation? So I invite you to turn around. You thought you'd got out of it. He hasn't asked us to talk to each other yet. So I invite you to turn around and talk to your neighbours. What blows your mind? And how might we join in this work of deliberation? What are the possibilities? How might we be church? Have a conversation about what the possibilities are.